Hey everyone, Cody here. I wanted to let you know that since we have our Dead of Winter event coming up on February 10th, we're going to give our listeners a chance to win some free stuff. So if you go to iTunes and review our show using the hashtag, or the pound sign, Dead of Winter, you'll be eligible for a free giveaway during our live show. And if you've already left a review, it's okay. You can go back and you can edit your review to include that hashtag. Thanks again for listening. Now let's get to the ghosts. The following contains explicit language, violent stories, and terrible jokes. Listener discretion is advised. St. Louis is a city filled with ghosts. A few years ago, one of the most talked about hauntings in the city was a wonderfully restored old building on Newstead Avenue in the city's central west end. The occupants at the time, who owned a graphic design company, decided it would be the perfect place for their home and business with its spacious rooms, hardwood floors, and central studio with high ceilings. There had been rumors about the building for years, but they didn't let the story scare them off. Of course, they didn't realize that when people said the building was haunted, they actually meant that it was infested with ghosts. The building had once served the city as the 11th District Police Station and Jail. Built in 1904 to prepare for the influx of crime that was feared would come to St. Louis with the start of the World's Fair, it saw more than its share of violence and death over the years. One incident in 1945 ended with the death of a waiter named Edward Melendez who was beaten to death in his cell overnight. His cellmates and three police officers were indicted for his murder. In 1953, the station house became linked to tragedy again when it played a key role in one of the most notorious murder-kidnapping cases in Missouri history. It was a case that involved the 11th District Police Station, corrupt cops, mobsters, Route 66's most famous no-tell motel, and a little boy whose life was ended far too soon. Welcome to the latest episode of American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, and lore of America's past. Hosted by Cody Beck and Troy Taylor, our second season explores the history, mystery, and hauntings of St. Louis, Missouri, the most haunted city along the Mississippi River. St. Louis, as most of us know, is the gateway to the West. Founded by the French, taken over by the Spanish, and sold to Americans, it is one of the most unique cities in the country. It was built alongside the mighty Mississippi River, and it was the river on which the city's fortunes were made. But in addition to steamships and travelers, the river also brought floods, disease, and in 1849, a fire that nearly wiped out all of St. Louis. But it went on to become the city that opened the American West. It was the last outpost of civilization. It was in St. Louis that wagon trains gathered the last of their supplies before they ventured out onto the untamed prairie. People came to St. Louis seeking a new life and new adventures. In the years after the Civil War, they went west in search of a dream. 
60 years later, they do it all over again. Only this time, they didn't head west on horseback or as part of a wagon train, they do it in an automobile. When Route 66 came through St. Louis in 1926, it changed the history of the city. The highway, which has become known as the Mother Road, began in downtown Chicago and stretched all the way to the Pacific Ocean. Route 66 began as a way to meet the needs of a growing nation. It gained both fame and infamy during the Dust Bowl days of the Great Depression as the highway became an escape route for the thousands of families who moved westward from Oklahoma, Texas, and Arkansas. The Okies, as they were called, sought salvation from the drought in California. During World War II, Route 66 became a military conduit, providing a fast-moving passage for men, munitions, and equipment to move across the country. The continuous convoys kept the highway busy and the pockets of the roadside merchants filled. By the 1950s, when the federal government began designing new, wider, faster highways to take people across the country, the days of Route 66 were numbered. Even though it survived for three more decades, its end was inevitable. In 1983, the last sections of US 66 lost their designation and the highway became a storied part of America's past. St. Louis played a key role in Route 66 history. It was the first major city south of Chicago through which the cross-country highway passed and locations along US 66 in the city have become legendary. There was the famous Eat Right Diner, the Donut Drive-In, and Ted Drew's Frozen Custard, just to name a few. But there was another spot that was certainly more famous than any other, the Coral Court Motel. Few motels on Route 66, or just about anywhere for that matter, had the kind of questionable reputation that was enjoyed by the infamous Coral Court, which was just outside the city limits. When it came to mystery, intrigue, and the sheer tawdriness of the no-tell motel, you couldn't beat the Coral Court. The brick motor court was first imagined by John Carr in 1941 and was painstakingly designed by architect Adolf Struberg, who was hired by Carr to give him a little something extra. There were a lot of mom and pop motels in those days with eight or so units, but Carr didn't want that. He told Struberg that he wanted something outstanding. The Coral Court became famous thanks to its prime location on Route 66. Heading west on the Mother Road, it was the perfect place to stop after a day-long drive from Chicago. When it opened, its seamy reputation as the perfect rendezvous spot for philanderers and mobsters was still in the future. In 1942, the motor court greeted its first guests. The first 10 bungalows were built with honey-colored glazed bricks and large glass block windows. Each unit had two rooms and two garages, and this helped the Coral Court to become an immediate success. By the end of World War II, the Coral Court was one of the most visited motels on the entire stretch of US 66. The place was a hit, with coast-to-coast -coast travelers, but for many locals, the Coral Court was something of a rite of passage. Attending a late-night post-prom party or swiping a Coral Court towel or matchbook was the thing to do for St. Louis teenagers. For those who wanted to remain anonymous, the motel was the place to go for an illicit rendezvous. It soon began to be known as St. Louis's best no-tell motel. The reasons why were simple. The rooms could be rented for a rest period of four to eight hours, which was originally created as a courtesy for truck drivers, but had obvious benefits for those who were sneaking around on their husband or wife. Each room had its own garage, so cars were hidden from prying eyes, and the management of the Coral Court was absolutely discreet. Thanks to this, the legend of the motel spread up and down Route 66 from Chicago to LA. But bad times were coming to the Coral Court. It would be a single incident that would destroy the motel's reputation for good, the same incident that would also stain the 11th District Police Station in the Central West End. 
Both of them became inextricably linked to a tragic kidnapping case in 1953 involving a young boy named Bobby Greenlees. The case brought lasting infamy to both the Coral Court and the police station because the kidnappers used the motor court as a hideout after the kidnapping occurred and, at at least one of the two locations, half of the $600,000 ransom paid for Bobby's release vanished without a trace. Bobby Greenlees Jr. was the six-year-old son of Robert and Virginia Greenlees, residents of Mission Hills, Kansas, a prominent suburb of Kansas City. Robert Greenlees was one of the largest Cadillac dealers in the nation. In comparison to the wealth of the Greenlees family, Bobby's kidnappers, Carl Austin Hall and Bonnie Hetty, were dead broke. However, both had known privilege earlier in their lives. It had been at military school that Hall had met Paul Greenlees, Bobby's older adopted brother. Hall later inherited a large sum of money from his father, but lost it all in bad business ventures. After that, he turned to crime. His first big time brush with the law got him arrested for robbing a cab driver. His total take from this crime spree was $38, but it was enough to land him in the Missouri State Penitentiary. In prison, he dreamed of the big score and began planning a kidnapping that would help him retire. After he got out, Hall moved to St. Joseph, Missouri, where he started dating Bonnie Hetty. She was certainly no catch. She had a reputation for being easy and was thought of as dim-witted and occasionally turned to prostitution when she needed to pay the rent. But in her favor, Bonnie did own her own home and she and Hall often drank themselves into a stupor there, never bothered by anyone. They had a violent relationship and in fact, when Hetty was later arrested for kidnapping, she still bore the bruises of her latest go around with Carl's fists. Her willingness to put up with Hall's abuse is probably a clue as to why she agreed to go along with the kidnapping scheme. During the summer months of 1953, Hall and Hetty made repeated trips to Kansas City to follow the Greenlees family. After some debate, they decided that Bobby would be the easiest target. At that time, the boy was enrolled at a fashionable Catholic private school. And late in the morning on September 28th, Hetty entered the school and told a nun that she was Bobby's aunt. She and Virginia Greenlee, she said, had been shopping at Country Club Plaza and when Virginia suffered a heart attack. Well, Hetty said that she had come to take Bobby to the hospital. When Bobby was brought out of class, he immediately took Bonnie's hand in his as if he knew her. Hetty would later say that he was so trusting. Hetty and Hall met a few minutes later in a drugstore and they drove across town and then across the state line into Kansas. When Bobby was taken across the state line, the Lindbergh Law, named for the famous kidnapping case, went into effect and the taking of Bobby Greenlease became a federal crime. And it was just about to get worse. In a vacant field in Overland Park, Bonnie got out of the car and walked a short distance away while Carl killed Bobby. He never had any intention of keeping the boy alive. First he tried to strangle him, but the rope he used was too short. Then he punched him in the face, knocking out one tooth. Finally, he pushed the boy down and shot him in the head with a 38 caliber pistol. Bobby was dead less than 30 minutes after he'd been abducted. 
After they killed him, Carl and Bonnie drove back to St. Joseph and buried the body in the backyard of Hetty's home. Hall had dug the grave the night before. After the body was covered, he planted flowers in the freshly churned soil, hoping to cover all evidence of the horrific crime. While Bobby was already dead and buried by the time the Greenleys family even realized he was missing. A call came from Bobby's school asking about Virginia's health, and it was quickly discovered that an unknown woman had abducted him. Soon after, they received the ransom demand from Carl Hall. He mailed them a pen that Bobby had been wearing when he was taken and demanded a ransom of $600,000 in $10 and $20 bills. Robert Greenleys called several of his closest friends and they began putting the money together. He also called the head of the local bank, Arthur Eisenhower, who was the brother of Dwight D. Eisenhower, and the two men put together a plan to record the serial numbers of all of the ransom bills. While the money was being accumulated, Hall called the Greenlease residents repeatedly. He continually reassured them that Bobby was alive, and finally, a week after the kidnapping, the money was delivered. Well, as it turned out, it had to be delivered two times because Hall was so stupid he couldn't find it the first time around. Well, finally, after almost bungling a second money drop on a dark country road, Hall was able to retrieve the ransom. It was just after midnight on October 5th when Hall made one last phone call to Robert Lederman, a friend of the Greenleases, who had arranged the ransom. He promised Lederman that the family would have Bobby back within 24 hours. It was a promise he couldn't keep. While Robert and Virginia waited for word of where to find their son, Hall and Hetty drove to St. Louis with a money bag that weighed more than 85 pounds. As they traveled, word of the kidnapping leaked to the media and it became a nationwide sensation. When they arrived in St. Louis, Hall and Hetty were stunned to find themselves at the center of the story. They had quickly been identified by the authorities as the kidnappers. You see, criminal masterminds, they were not. They ditched their car and started using taxi cabs. They rented a small apartment on Arsenal Street and decided to lay low, a plan that didn't last for very long. Carl got bored and got tired of Bonnie one afternoon, he left the drunken woman passed out in the apartment and vanished. He left behind a few thousand dollars, but kept the rest for himself because he was off to live the good life. A short time later, Hall hooked up with an ex-con cab driver and a prostitute. The three of them ended up at the Coral Court Motel. The cabbie assured him he could stay there with no questions asked. The owner, he claimed, was mob-connected and had operated a posh St. Louis brothel for years. While hiding out at the Coral Court, Carl began throwing his money around and hosting wild parties for his seedy new companions. He lavished money on the prostitute, but she later said Hall was so drunk and so nervous that he was never able to even have sex with her. As for the cab driver, Hall turned the man into his own personal valet. He gave him fistfuls of money and told him to buy new clothes and whatever else he thought he might need. Needless to say, this kind of behavior would not allow the kidnapper to stay in hiding for long. The owner of the cab company where Hall's new pal worked was Joe Costello, a well-known local gangster. When Costello heard about the big spending customer, he contacted a corrupt St. Louis police lieutenant named Louis Shoulders. The two men soon became entangled in what would be the mystery of the missing ransom money. Both denied stealing it, but they were mixed up in the mess somehow. It's unknown whether Costello figured out that Hall was the Greenlease kidnapper and gave Shoulders the tip for an arrest of a lifetime, or whether the two of them simply conspired to rip Hall off. What is known, however, is that Hall was arrested a short time later by Shoulders and by a patrolman named Elmer Dolan. They initially claimed that Hall was just being questioned for suspicious activity, namely flashing around a large amount of cash. The money was bagged up and taken to the 11th District Station on Newstead Avenue, where it was stuffed into a suitcase and a footlocker. The footlocker, which contained about $300,000, remained in the property room, but the suitcase was never seen again. 
Somehow, it walked out of the Newstead Avenue station's property room and promptly vanished. Meanwhile, Hall was falling apart in the station's interrogation room. He quickly confessed to kidnapping and murdering Bobby Greenlease and led the police to the whereabouts of his partner, Bonnie Hetty. She was arrested, still living in the rundown apartment where Hall had abandoned her, and on October 7th, police officers and reporters rushed to Bonnie's house in St. Joe, where they unearthed Bobby's corpse from the backyard. Once Hall and Hetty confessed to the crime, they resigned themselves to their doom. When a federal jury in Kansas City returned with the death penalty, it was said that Bonnie actually smiled. On December 18th, only 81 days after the kidnapping, Carl Hall and Bonnie Hetty were executed side by side at the Missouri State Penitentiary. Neither had appealed the verdict. Police officials had a second chair installed in the gas chamber so that they could be executed at the same time. Bonnie Hetty was the only woman to ever be put to death in the Missouri gas chamber, and she talked cheerfully to the guards while she was being strapped in. She didn't fall silent until Carl finally told her to shut up. The Bobby Greenlee's kidnapping received national attention and aroused widespread anger. That anger led to an immediate investigation into the missing ransom money, which vanished at the Newstead Avenue station. The glory that should have led to promotions for Shoulders and Dolan became a dirty scandal that highlighted the widespread corruption of the St. Louis Police Department in the 1950s. The two officers were later convicted in federal court on a charge of perjury for supposedly lying about the sequence of events from the time they arrested Hall until the time the money was brought to the Newstead station and counted. Various police clerks and officers testified they never saw the men carrying anything when they entered the station with Hall, and they certainly did not see the suitcase or the footlocker. Shoulders stated that the money was outside in his car, and he brought it into the station after bringing Hall inside because, well, you know, why wouldn't you leave $600,000 in cash in your car? The theory was that Shoulders and Dolan, who both left the station on personal errands after booking Hall, returned to Hall's apartment and stole half the money. They brought the remaining half to the station through the rear door. Hall's statement, not surprisingly, directly contradicted that of Shoulders and Dolan. Hall maintained that the money had been left in the apartment when he was arrested. Over time, there have been a lot of other theories about who might have taken that money. Most pointed fingers at Shoulders and his connection with mobster Joe Costello, while others blame the corruption in the police department itself. Costello was accused of taking the money by the FBI, who followed him for years, tapping his phone and questioning his associates. They could never make the theft charges stick, but Costello was eventually arrested on weapons charges and sent to prison. If the cops and Costello didn't take it, where did the money go? Well, some have suggested that Coral Court owner John Carr may have been involved. If Carr knew about the money, and it's very possible that he did, he could have entered Hall's room using a passkey and walked out with half the money, believing that Hall would never miss it. And even if he did miss it, what was he able to do about it? You can't exactly call the police about your missing ransom money. When John Carr died, he was a multimillionaire. Could any of that remaining fortune have been part of the Greenlee's kidnapping money? Well, we'll never know. John Carr died in 1984 in the Coral Court Motel. A shadow of its former self was torn down in 1995. No trace of it remains now. The Notel Motel has been replaced by a subdivision. The ransom money, too, is long gone. Well, sort of. For many years, it was news whenever any of the bills linked to the missing Greenlee's money turned up. Where was it coming from? Well, nobody knew. And now with so many principals in the case long dead, the vanished money will always remain a mystery. But of course, that's not the end of this story.
1960, the 11th District Police Station on Newstead Avenue closed its doors. For the next five years, it sat empty until artist Howard Jones and his wife Helen converted the building into a private residence. The former drill room was turned into a spacious studio and living quarters. Jones was an art instructor at Washington University and was well known for his public and private work. The old station house seemed to be the perfect venue to blend his work and private life, but the couple soon found that the building was anything but a peaceful place to live. Howard and Helen began to hear the unsettling sound of footsteps marching through the studio at night, followed by a dragging sound and more footsteps. The thumping boots were heard night after night, although nothing in the building was ever moved or disturbed. Radios and electronic equipment were turned off and yet often played by themselves. This occurred even when the devices were unplugged, Jones later claimed. The only thing that seemed to prevent the strange happenings was leaving a light burning in the studio all night. For some unknown reason, the light seemed to quiet the spirited inhabitants of the place. The weird goings-on soon attracted the attention of St. Louis's most famous psychical investigator, Gordon Honer. In the 1960s, Honer and his partner, Philip Goodwilling, had an investigation group called Haunt Hunters, one of the first organized groups of its kind in the country. Honer ran newspaper ads and appeared on television and radio shows looking for haunted places to investigate. His research at the former Newstead Avenue police station seemed to reveal there was at least one spirit lingering in the building, the waiter who had been murdered in his cell in 1945. Honer came to the old station with William Keenan, a reporter from the St. Louis Magazine, along with a few independent witnesses. With a Ouija board, they attempted to contact the spirit who was haunting the building. Once Honer believed they had made contact, he instructed Howard Jones to ask a series of questions. Was the unknown presence a prisoner in the building when it was a jail? Yes, spelled out the reply. Did he die here? Yes. A policeman? No. A prisoner? Yes. When they asked if the spirit would manifest for the group, the talking board spelled out, you for no. Honer took this to mean that the ghost wanted nothing to do with the rest of the observers, but it had no problem making contact with Howard Jones. This left the professor not surprisingly, more than a little unsettled. The only idea he could come up with to appease the ghost was to turn on more lamps in the house. They stayed on day and night, and in 1975, he told a reporter that for the first time, we slept undisturbed. Howard and Helen moved out of the station a few years later, and another artist moved in, using the building as a studio and residence. Corey Fossmeyer was even more unsettled than Howard Jones had been while living in the station. He and his family quickly came to believe that the presence of the building had taken a disliking to them for some reason. They heard the same heavy footsteps reported by Howard and Helen. They were also plagued by disembodied voices, rapping sounds, and the inexplicable appearance of footprints and handprints on freshly waxed floors and clean windows. The prints didn't match those of anyone in the house. The family finally decided to leave after being awakened one night by the sound of someone screaming. They later reported it was so intense that it seemed to shake the whole building. The screams actually caused them to flee out into the street. That turned out to be the last straw. They moved out soon after. Another artist followed but had a completely different experience, or so he told Matt and Denise Piskulik when they were looking at buying the building. He assured them that the stories about the station house were merely that, just stories. When Matt first came to look at the building, he told them, Hey, about this Newstead ghost thing, I've never had any problem with it. Well, Matt didn't think anything about it at the time. It was no secret the house had been featured on many local radio and television specials, usually around Halloween. But he and Denise liked the place. They didn't plan to let it scare them. Well, that was the plan anyway. 
it didn't work out so well. Trouble began almost as soon as they moved in. Each day, the couple heard footsteps banging up the front stairs in broad daylight. Matt first assumed it was a delivery person, but no package was ever left behind. This was weird, but if this was as bad as things got, they could handle it. Matt and Denise planned to make the building home to their company, VIP Graphics, but were only going to live in the apartment until they could afford to move. They didn't plan to stay there long, so really, I mean, how bad could things get? They quickly found out. One night, Denise was startled awake by the sound of someone crying. It went on for a minute or so, then it stopped, making her think she'd just imagined it. She lay there in the darkness, waiting to see if it happened again. It did. The eerie moaning sounded as though it was coming from inside of the walls. It became so loud that Matt woke up too. They tried to figure out a source for the sound. Was it the wind or an animal, anything? And then the screaming started. It was a man shrieking out a long, piercing cry of pain. Matt and Denise didn't sleep anymore that night. The following morning, Denise called everyone she knew to tell them of their horrifying experience. Friends of friends led her to Corey Fossmeyer, the former occupant of the building. After they connected, he told her of his own strange experiences and admitted that he and his family had left the former station house because it was haunted. Well, despite the chilling incidents that had occurred in the past and their own sleepless night, Matt and Denise were determined to make the place work for their home and business. They started to do some renovations to the building, which, as often happens, stirred up the spirits even more. One morning in the summer of 1992, Denise heard a woman's voice call out hello while she was in the bathroom. Assuming that a client had arrived on business, she told the visitor she'd be right out. But when Denise opened the door, she found no one was waiting for her. She searched the building. No one was there. The footsteps were heard all throughout that summer, mostly on the front staircase. The footsteps sounded like the tapping of hard soles on the concrete stairs, even though the steps were thickly carpeted. As the days passed, the footsteps continued becoming louder and more frequent and were sometimes accompanied by the smell of a perfume. Denise was the first person to actually see a ghost. One of their staff members had an office across the hall from Denise and one day she looked up and saw a man standing in the doorway who quickly ducked out of sight. Assuming that it was a staff member, she went across the hall to ask him a question, but there was no one in the office. The employees had their own strange experiences. A layout design artist was working on a project one morning when she felt someone blowing on the back of her neck. Startled, she spun around to see who was behind her. There was no one there. Soon after, a client encountered an apparition in the hallway and reported it to Denise. The ghost began showing up on a regular basis after that, as if it had been simply waiting around, waiting to be noticed. In September 1992, Matt and Denise invited six purported psychics to visit the building. All of the psychics claimed to have no prior knowledge about the building's history, but were able to reveal enough information about the place to impress Matt and Denise. They claimed there were many ghosts in the old station house. Some of them were permanent residents with a connection to the place while others were just passing through. They stated that the station was filled with confused energy, most of it coming from the attic, and there had been a lot of violence there. Unknown to the mediums, this was a place where prisoners had once been held. Before they left, they identified several spirits from the building's past, including police officers, jail inmates, a woman whose husband had worked at the station, and a young girl. They offered to try and cleanse the building of the spirits, but Denise politely declined the offer. She later said they weren't hurting anything by being there. It's kind of live and let live, and they've been here longer than we have, and I just didn't feel the need to do anything like that. They've never done anything as far as I'm concerned. Well, Matt and Denise eventually moved out, and the station house was divided into residential spaces and offices. 
In 2001, an architectural firm began occupying the second floor and were soon convinced the place was haunted. One of the architects told STL Today that she was certain there was a presence in the office, a feeling that she was being watched, and she often heard footsteps going upstairs to the attic. This always occurred when the building was empty. Strangest of all was the inexplicable smell of perfume that seemed to come and go without explanation. It was an old-time smell, she said, like lavender or lilac. She could never figure out where it was coming from. Another staff member who had also encountered the perfume told of hearing the sound of a child crying one day. She first assumed one of the staff members had brought the child to work with them and she went into the other office to see, but the office was empty and there were no children in the building. Not living ones anyway. As time has passed, the notoriety of the old 11th District Station on Newstead Avenue has faded. It's no longer considered one of the most haunted places in St. Louis and for the most part, the stories aren't talked about much today. Do the phantom footsteps still pace up and down the stairs? Are the voices still heard? Do the lights still turn on and off? And do radios still turn on by themselves? I don't know. No one is talking about the old police station much these days, but if the stories of nearly four decades are true, then it seems unlikely that the spirits no longer linger at the building on Newstead Avenue. Perhaps they're just waiting around for someone to notice them so they can make their presence known in our world once again. Have you ever wanted to learn a new language? And I don't mean like spells or incantations to trap spirits, you weirdos. I mean like a new language that could help you start communicating with more people on this plane today. Then I need to tell you about Rosetta Stone. Look, you know the brand, you know the name. They have the expertise and a 30-year legacy, which makes them more qualified than ever to help you learn a new language today. They've helped millions of people build the fluency and confidence to speak new languages. Now, this is the part where Troy would tell me that I made some kind of grammatical error, but he's not here right now, so like, I don't know, it's like speaking tongues. Rosetta Stone focuses on speaking practice for real-life scenarios to get you ready for real conversations with real people. Or maybe you can even learn how to use some different types of Ouija boards. I don't know. Either way, Rosetta Stone can help you learn faster and retain your new language better. Honestly, Rosetta Stone really would have come in handy for season four of New Orleans because I know we butchered some of those French names and I apologize once again. Now you all know I have a nine to five job when I'm not at the podcast factory and Rosetta Stone actually helped me not make a total fool out of myself while I was in Brazil interviewing celebrities. Obrigado. And now I want to help you. So don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, American Hauntings podcast listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Rosetta Stone, how language is learned. Wait, by the way, Troy, like where do words come from? Hey, no, don't, 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 don't walk away. Oh, Troy, where do words? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. He just like yeah. all he had to do, he's 
but it's just about this guy who th- is worried that he might be turning Jedi. <laughs> That's not what it's about. I know, it's I know it's not. But he really thinks so. Yeah, yeah. 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 yeah right. We had to yeah. play the song, and it was just like the shortest <laughs> presentation because he's like, and that's pretty much it, you guys. It's just <laughs> this guy who Japanese that he might perhaps <laughs> be turning Japanese, and then he wrote the song. I'm just going for it. Well, this is all pretty loose. So yep, we're yep. good. So. All right. Welcome, welcome to American Hauntings Podcast, where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and all things paranormal. You are listening to episode 14, which is the first episode of season two which delves into the hauntings of St. Louis, Missouri. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me, somehow, still, my co-host is author, historian, crime buff, and founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. It was the longest first season of anything in my entire life. Yes. No, I'm just kidding. I agree. No, I agree. No, I'm just kidding. So. I can't believe we're here. No, I'm not either, and, and I can't believe we've made it into the second season already. Actually, I can't even believe we've done 14 episodes yeah, of anything, right. but... Um, it has been a lot of fun and will continue to be fun. And I'm sure that we will do things somewhat differently. We've got some ideas uh, about yep. season two. Um, obviously, new locations and new areas, but um, you know, we may change things up a little bit. I don't know. Yeah, we'll just or, or see what happens. If it's not broke, don't fix it. Or perhaps it is broke. <laughs> I'm not really sure. I kind of like the idea of it's just our baby, so we just do whatever. Yeah, we just want. do whatever we want. Yeah, just so. raising the kid, however I see yeah, fit. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know how bad can they turn out? I, I should mention that we are recording at the American Hauntings office. Yes. In Jacksonville, with our audience, we have with company. our entourage. Yes. Yeah, it's, so, it's our posse. Leah is here. Lisa is here, and and that loud laughter that Woo-hoo! you hear in the background is our friend Becky Ray, who is in town, and uh, we are working on this episode with friends, uh, which is the best way mm-hmm. to do it yep. because. That keeps us from doing this for like three hours. Yeah. And that's how every episode's not four hours long. Yes. Well, we are, we are as I said, we we're recording at the American Hauntings office, and uh, we are getting ready for uh, several things coming up. In fact, yesterday, January 8th, tickets went on sale for the Haunted America Conference in, in June yep. uh, in Alton. So if you have not already grabbed your tickets uh, do so because the after hour events we have 12 after hour events this year but they are going to fill up fast because nice. there's a lot of stuff we have never done before at the conference um, and it's going to be I think very cool this year I'm really looking forward to it but uh, the segue into that is that we are doing a live recording at the conference mm-hmm. we're also doing one next month at the dead of winter event which is uh, February 10th at the Mineral Springs in Alton and um, that is a free event, uh, completely free. Just got to show up. Uh, there are still just a few tickets left for the after-hour events, not very many. Um, we've got a dinner afterward and then a ghost hunt in the Mineral Springs that night. Um, and those are getting very close to being full. So if you're hoping to take part in those, you, you've got to get on it. My Otherwise, the, coming the event. Oh, cool. Just cool. for that. So I'll tell awesome. them to, to get on the, the yeah, after-hour Yeah, stuff. the after-hour stuff is, is going to fill up. But the, the daytime event thing... Uh, is, is completely free. We just ask that you bring a canned good or non-perishable items for local food banks. Uh, we, we always collect for that. Um, Wintertime, uh, a lot of food bank people have told us that the donations drop off after Christmas. And then so by February, they're starting to struggle looking for right. you know food items and stuff for the food banks. So we, we always do that in, in February. And we usually collect a really 
big pile of stuff, yeah. which is awesome. That's awesome. So that's all we ask. That's your admission price is uh, bring a can or bring an item or bring whatever you want to bring. Um, big thing, I think, was diapers, right? Lisa, that was what they had told us before. Definitely diapers and any kind of um, like paper towels, toilet paper, light bulbs, some of those things that you don't usually think about. Because yeah, they're not food. Are right, often sure. bringing cans from their pantry, and that's awesome. But if you can think about some of those items that you use around your house uh, daily, those are... Uh, also a big, big a hot plus. commodity, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and will be very much needed. So awesome. th think about those things that whenever you need them, you realize you don't have it, and you're like, oh shit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Get those. Like toilet paper. Um, yeah. <laughs> a, uh, that's a perfect thing. So exactly. literal. So exactly. <laughs> that is literally <laughs> something that you say. So um, yeah. Anyway, um, so yeah, that'll be coming up February 10th, and uh, we'll be recording a uh, a live show during that. Um, we have not figured out all the logistics for that yet yeah, I'll figure but it out. we're working on it and it's just gonna be fun it's yeah. gonna be just for us it's gonna be like doing another show except you're gonna see just it's gonna be a shortened monologue because trust me that would be our entire day <laughs> of me doing something so I'm gonna come up with a winter related thing and we'll be doing okay. that as our monologue and then people can ask questions about that if they want, or they can ask questions about anything to do with the podcast or whatever. We, it doesn't matter. We just want to get everybody involved, and I think it'll be a good time. It's going yeah. to be a lot of fun. And getting people involved has been, I think, our, one of our goals from the beginning of this thing. Is, Absolutely. I mean, that's why you came to me in the first place. Is, hey, let's do this because people have questions about these stories or about these places, so let's have fun with it. And it has been a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, but getting everyone involved is has been important for the podcast because we depend on your reviews and we re depend on your, your likes on iTunes. Um, if you can leave a comment on your review, we, we appreciate it. Um, some of that, we wish that we could reply to those. I, yeah. I mean, I really wish they could. So if you have a question or you have something that you want us to reply to, send Cody an email mm -hmm. from the website. And um, hopefully at some point we'll start getting some emails in that we can read on the air. Yeah. Uh, we, we'd love to, or I guess we're not on the air, some, but you know what I mean, in the podcast and, universe. Right. Somewhere, but, um, and do some listener stories and yep. questions and comments and things. But we'd like to respond to some of the comments that we get on iTunes. We can't always, um, you know, we, we are always constantly working on the technical side of this. Okay, well, I'm not. I, have, I, have, I say we is a general kind of thing. Cody is working on that I apologize for the audience. No, we, you know what? And, hey, and, and you know, we know in our last episode, when we did our last episode in Alton, we had, what did we have, like 10 people in that room and we had two microphones. So we, we passed it around and, you know, we did the best we could and we know that it was a little hard to hear at some points, but um, it was, that was so much fun that I hate it. I mean, even though you weren't there, I Is wish you had been. Well, no, no, no. It would have been even more fun if you'd been there. But um, we did have a lot of fun with, with it. Me. Yeah, we had a lot of fun with it. It, it was fun. I it enjoyed really going through the audio. It yeah, I'll bet. Entertaining. I'll bet. Yeah. So, the stuff that I cut out welcome. was the most entertaining. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Lisa, Lisa was a big part of that. <laughs> Not the parts cut out. Very so, professional. Yeah. yeah. It was, hey, you actually, you, you actually were more professional than Cody and I normally are. Yeah. So that's, I think, saying <laughs> that's not, true. well, it's not really saying a lot. I mean, not you don't get an award but, for it, but, <laughs> but it's but, true. No, it is true. So, well, anyway, um, well, what do you want to talk about? All right, let's dive in. Uh, okay. My first thing I got to say, so even in a police station, you had to throw in some ghost kid language. I did. And, and I said, I, I wrote 
part of that just for you, you know, yes. the, 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 because as soon as I, you know, I had forgotten, actually, I had gone back to the story because, I mean, I had really haven't written a lot about a lot of places in St. Louis in a, in a lot of years. Um, the original, the original Haunted St. Louis book came out in like, I don't know, like 2002 or something. It's like 15, 16 years ago. Yeah. Um, the new edition is coming out next month. It's coming out in February. Um, so that'll be cool to have a new edition of it out and to be able to, you know, to, to get back into some of these stories again, it'll be kind of cool. But I had forgotten about there being ghost kids yeah. in this story. I, I really had just forgotten about it completely. And then as soon as I did see that, I thought, well, I got to play this up. Yeah, thanks. Me. Thanks, man. Okay, so I love how in the beginning you talk about how the building is infested with ghosts. That's just very colorful language. Well, I mean, you know, infested. I mean, I'm sure it was infested with all kinds of things yeah. over a period of years. Right. Used as a police station for 54 years. I'll bet it was infested with Lots lice and roaches and mice and everything else. So go, why not ghosts? I mean, yeah. if, if you believe the psychics that came in, you know, they said I there were there were psychics. lots of ghosts there. Yes. So, you know. <laughs> Um, you know, and then they said they didn't know anything about the history of the building, but you know, I don't mm -hmm. know. I don't think that's very hard to figure out where the prisoners were kept, you yeah. know, or whatever. But you know, whatever they, uh, I did always like the fact that when they asked Denise, "Oh, did you want me to get rid of them?" and she politely declined. Yeah. That was the comment that was made. I thought that was funny. So. Right, just for forty nine ninety five. Right. Yes, right. I will clean your house. No, I love. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. If you like the American Hauntings podcast, then you're probably going to like the services, books, and tours offered by our various sponsors, like American Hauntings, Inc., which has been a publisher of books on ghosts and hauntings, crime, and the unexplained in America since 1993. In addition, we also offer tours, overnight ghost hunts, and weekend excursions, plus the Haunted America Conference, which is coming up in June 2018 in Alton, Illinois. You can find out more information about the company at AmericanHauntings.net. Another of our sponsors is It's Raining Zen in the mysterious Mineral Springs Mall in Alton, Illinois. They're Alton's only authentic new age and metaphysical shop, offering everything from crystals to Himalayan salt lights, healing herbs, charms, tarot cards, and even an assortment of clothing. You can find them on East Broadway in Alton or on Facebook by searching for It's Raining Zen. We're also sponsored by the Best Western Premier Hotel in Alton, Illinois, the home away from home for American hauntings, and the host for the Haunted America Conference. The Best Western Premier is a newly renovated location with facilities for conferences, weddings, an outdoor fire pit, brand new bar, and standalone restaurant and grill. We highly recommend it and we know you'll love it too while visiting the area. You can find them on College Avenue in Alton or by searching on the Best Western website. We also recommend the I Had That store located at 125 East Main Street in Belleville, Illinois. This is the number one spot in the St. Louis and Southwestern Illinois region for vintage toys and games from the 1970s and 80s, as well as a huge selection of horror-related toys, games, figures, books, and much more. You can find the store on Facebook by searching for I Had That Toy. And now, on with the show. I love this story because, uh, you know, I'd never heard it before, but it has everything. It has the kidnapping, it has corruption, it has... Um just, you know, the money missing. Gangsters, gangsters. Route 66, it, it, yeah, it reminds motels, me of like a John yeah. Dillinger type uh, yeah, like movie or something. I know, you know, I just, that was that was the why I wanted to kind of kick off the season with that story because 
it, it does have everything. It's just one of those stories that's it's just always been one of my favorites when mm-hmm. you tie it in. And it's horrible. And you know, yeah. and I know that in parts of the monologue I, I kinda did sound like I was making light of some of the stuff and, and it's not I'm certainly not making light of this poor kid. Mm-hmm. I mean or his family. I mean that whole thing was terrible. But these two were a couple of the biggest stooges that ever pulled off a crime yeah. in the state of Missouri. Not rock I mean, scientists. seriously. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, criminal, as I said, criminal yeah. masterminds, they were not. Uh, by the time they drove, literally drove across the state, mm-hmm. they were already wanted by the police because they'd already figured out who committed the kidnapping. Yeah. I mean, they, you, they, didn't, they didn't try to cover anything up because they were just, and it wasn't because they didn't want to cover it up. They just didn't know how. They were just, I mean, mm-hmm. just a couple of real dim bulbs. Yeah, I mean, really. It, it, I, mean, I don't know what, how else to say it. Everybody in this story kind of seems that way. Like, the guys stealing the money, it, they had one job, to get their stories straight. Yeah, well, and and they, yeah, but I think that, I think the problem there was that corruption was so bad. It was like, you know, you're talking about a situation of like Chicago in the 1920s where mm-hmm. people were doing anything they wanted to. The Chicago police chief was on, you know, going around saying 90% of his officers were taking money from the mob. St. Louis was the same way just years later. You know, into the 40s and the 1950s, um, you know, the, the, the St. Louis mob was so prevalent and so entrenched in the police department. I mean, there were all kinds of hearings and trials and arrests. Mm-hmm. And I think that things were just so, you know, so deeply enmeshed in crime that, you know, people just got to the point where they, you know, it was just Second that was part nature. of the explanation. Yeah. It was just nobody thought. Any, I'm not going to get caught. I don't need nobody else with... is getting caught. Yeah, and you know, and then the the stupid stories. Well, a okay. First of all, do you why would you leave the money behind at at a seedy motor lodge yeah. at this point? You would never leave six hundred thousand dollars sitting behind. Mm-mm. You just wouldn't. I don't even okay? leave six dollars. No, right, there. exactly. So you wouldn't leave it there while you arrested the guy. So no one would do that. And then I like the part about how. Oh yeah, I left it in the car. Yeah. Six hundred grand in cash. I just left it in the car. Yeah. Doesn't matter if you're parked at a police station. You know, at the time, yeah. that was a pretty fairly rough part of town. Yeah. So you weren't going to leave that money in the car. And then I also like the part of how they brought him in, they arrested him, stuck him in an interrogation room, and then both men left the station on personal business. Yeah. Really? Yeah. You know, I we mean, come on now. Yeah. Yeah. We'll be back later. Don't worry about us. We're just this guy. You know, we don't know what's going on with him, but he had all this money. But you know, don't worry about it. <laughs> we'll get back to him later. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, every story was an obvious lie, you know, and you you had mobsters involved and you had, you know, it just a little bit of everything. And what I liked about it was the fact that you had a police lieutenant and a mobster that were like best pals. I mean, well, it's a sitcom. Yeah. How does that happen? Yeah, exactly. I mean, how does that happen the exactly? Couple. Yeah. So, you know, I think that it was, a, it was a case of something bad was going to happen, or something worse, rather. I don't even about worse, but more bad things were going to happen yeah. in this case. You had a kidnapping that was bungled. You had a, a guy who just committed murder for no reason. I mean, there was no reason for them to kill that little boy. They yeah. could have easily taken that money and given it back. But instead, you know... They, they kidnapped him, took him out, murdered him, then made the ransom call. Yeah. Makes no sense. You know, yeah, criminals just, do not tend no, to be No, the yeah, you're right, and especially those two. So. Yeah, that's unfortunate. But, I mean, in that case, I understand if, if there were ghost kids because, you know, I'd be pissed. Yeah, <laughs> if, right, if, no kidding. You know, you know something like that. Poor happened. guy. I mean, the kid was six years old. Yeah. I mean, that's 
that's tiny. That's a little kid's like a first grader. Yeah. They're not even a first grader. Yeah, it's horrible. You know, I mean, it's horrible. The whole thing is horrible. And like I said, you, you know, we don't try to make light of any of these things. No, no, but, I, but I, and we, I wasn't, but, we, but you can't help but poke fun at these two idiots. Right, and we're trying you know. to make the best out of this horrible situation. Exactly. And, uh, you know, I consider our podcast to be kind of, you know, comedy podcast at the same time. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Well, I think you may be stretching that. Uh, uh, that, uh, may, oh. that might be saying something like us being professional. I think so, I'm funny. Uh, that's that's about it. Legends uh, in our own minds. I have so. to. I have to ask about. So okay. So police station. You know, no more. But families start to move in, and, and things are renovated, and then eventually they're driven out by screams. And I'm wondering, could this have been our old friend uh, was it Tom Boothby? Oh, <laughs> from Alton? No, no, I, I'm pretty streamer? sure, honestly, I'm pretty sure it was the waiter. You know, okay. if you needed if you needed a ghost, a resident ghost, I mean, you can leave out all the stories from the psychics about all of the other ghosts that were there. And, and I could see that. I could actually see how that would be a place where you'd have a lot of spirit activity moving through a building with all the activity, all yeah. the violence taking place there. But traumatic if you had right? to pick a ghost who was like the most prominent one in that building... I would say that Edward Melendez, that waiter who mm-hmm. was brought in on pretty much trumped up charges, yeah. was brought in, stuck in a cell, and murdered by his cellmates. And 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 three cops who were there allowed it to happen. Yeah, you know, and who also ended up, you know, being drug in on charges, um, although they were never punished. The well, cops for, got they did not. resign a few months later, but they were never punished yeah. for their part in it. Um, but all of the inmates were, you know, they charges filed against them. They ended up with, with prison sentences out of it. But, I mean, if you're hearing screams of someone in pain, I'm going to guess it was this poor guy stabbed to death in his cell. Yeah. And whether or not he was still there or if that was, you know, like we talked about in the past, one of those kind of, you know, residual echoes of something that would wake you up in the middle of the night. I mean, this is a place with a great potential for being haunted. So I'm really not that surprised. There were a lot of ghost stories about this building. And they became, you know, a place becomes, as we've talked about and as we discovered in, you know, doing our Alton season, a place becomes, you know, and I'm going to put quotations, one of the most haunted places in the city, Mm -hmm. um, depending on how much newspaper coverage you get. Yeah. Um, Sometimes it's not even because the place is so actively haunted. I mean, yes, this was actively haunted. You had several different families who would live there, but then you had the one guy who said, nothing ever happened to me while I lived yeah. here. Either that or he was just trying to sell the place. It's hard to say. One of the two, uh, yeah. But, you know, regardless, you know, you had several generations of people who would live there who all talked about it being haunted. So I think it legitimately was, but it got so much coverage for the same reason that I picked it as our first story for the season is it has everything. Yeah. It's a story it's a with everything. Story. And so it made, in the 90s, it was a big, you know, it became a huge deal. I mean, and they were talking about it before that, but I remember I remember specifically in the 90s hearing about it. It was in, uh, it was like Fate Magazine, which at the time was mm-hmm. a pretty big, booming, national, paranormal magazine. I don't, Beck, is it even around anymore? Did yes. it still publish? It still exists, oh. but it's not nearly as awesome as Yeah, I, see, I don't, I don't ever totally see it. I don't ever see it on newsstands anymore, but what, I know they still have a Fate a magazine. Fate? Oh, uh, what's a magazine? Uh, oh. Uh, <laughs> hey, got it. Uh, you whippersnappers. Fate. Yeah, what's a magazine? <laughs> I know they have a website. I don't know, you know. Oh, see, but, that word I, I think know. it's yeah. still in print. Yeah. It doesn't come out as often as it used to. I see, yeah. But it used to be, in fact, upstairs, I have this gigantic tub about the size of this table, and front of us that is filled with fate magazines from the 50s through the 80s 
Oh and yeah, you mentioned looking for that tons of them. picture. Yeah, like looked through all that. Yeah. yeah. So there's, you know, so yeah, it was a great magazine, but they um, they did a big write up on the the station, the police station in the nineties. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it was it was all over. It was everywhere. You know, as in the store, we talk about STL today, and yeah. you know, the St. Louis Magazine, and it, and everybody covered it at one time or another uh, because it, it's a great story. I mean, it really was. It was really a great story. And of course, you had the as they claim to be the inspiration for the Ghostbusters involved. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I can you uh, talk about that. I met I met Gordon Honer. Gosh. I think he was at, I think he came, maybe came to one of our conferences or something. Nice. Uh, yeah, I mean, this was in late 90s, I think. He was, and I'm not sure if he's still around. I don't think he's active. Um, if he is still around, I think he's retired. But they had uh, had this group that they started in the 60s called the Haunt Hunters. And they were, you know, they went around all over St. Louis and they were like the, because I mean, that's all there was. I mean, you got to, you got to go again, look back in time in the fifties and sixties, there were no ghost groups around. There was no, of course, no internet or anything like that. So, I mean, what you had was Hans Holzer and the Warrens, you know, oh, Ed, and old Ed and Lorraine, and there, there weren't many people around back then, but in St. Louis, you had the Haunt Hunters. So they were who you were going to call. They were, they were who you called. Gotcha. Yes, they were. And they did everywhere. They did. And I think probably... Uh, Howard Jones became familiar with them because they did a lot of stuff at Washington University, yeah. which now we're going to move forward into 1971 when they show up to do another investigation at uh, Whitmore House at Washington University when a guy who was attending school there named Harold Ramis met them when they came. So the story the story always was, well, at least the story that, that Gordon Honer always told is that and, and he may have been right, and it makes sense that they were the inspiration for Ghostbusters. That they were the you know the the team he met you know at the time, and even even in the '80s, there there really weren't that many groups around. So when Ghostbusters came out, it was a big deal. Yeah, I mean, if for anybody who was interested in this kind of stuff, I mean, that really kind of kicked things off into the modern era of you know ghost hunting and ghost research and all that kind of stuff it was really ghostbusters even though it was a comedy yeah. it was still something that people really hadn't seen before and uh, but they they always claimed to be the inspiration for that, and they may have been so dogs and cats living in <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah that's awesome before we get back to the show i've got to say something about the studio headphones that i'm using they make all different styles, but I use the Regent model, which comes over the ears, you know, like DJ style. I've got weird shaped inner ears, so none of the earbud style headphones fit me right. But I love these things. They've got a great tone and really balanced sound. They hook up to everything with Bluetooth, but they've also got an auxiliary cord if you don't want to go the wireless route. They've got interchangeable caps in different colors and designs, and since they're made in Sweden, a nice sleek look. Best of all, they've got 24 hours of battery life and 20 days of standby mode. Seriously, check out these studio headphones. They're high quality at a low cost and even lower if you're an American Hauntings podcast listener. Check out their website at studiosweden.com, which is in our show notes. And if you use the promo code American Hauntings, so it's just all one word, when you order, you'll get 15% off your purchase. Check them out. You won't be sorry. And now on with the show. seems to be a common theme about uh, renovations, like stirring up yeah, trouble in yeah. different places. And well, first off, I think they should have 
kept it the way it was, and the cells could have been cool little like hipster rooms. Oh yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah. They had a hostel for artists, yes, you know, exactly. and let them sleep in cells. Exactly. So, yeah, and yeah. get that inspiration. But, but that's the, what they would do now. That would be a very yes, hipster. It'd be hotel a Williamsburg, thing. Brooklyn yeah. thing. Yeah. Uh, but I'm wondering, like, do you think it's that ghosts don't like change, or uh, they're just like, hey, what, what are you doing? You're messing up my my spot here, or what is it? You know, if if you're talking about ghosts that are a an actual presence i think you you, i mean you could be talking about i don't want you messing with my you know i don't like change Mm -hmm. i don't want you messing with things but i think for the most part when you're talking about a haunting especially one where you know a violent events have happened and it's left an impression behind that you're talking about that residual energy so you're talking about energy so you come in and this this energy has soaked into its physical surroundings so when you come in and start tearing that up and changing it and moving things around and you're you're messing with that energy so when you disturb that energy things happen mm-hmm. you know and so you get these weird sounds and you know and the footsteps and the knocking and all that kind of stuff and i think it's i think it's probably more of a residual thing but it could be either way i mean you could go either way with that okay no that's, that's a good answer and I love, we talked about it a little bit earlier, but uh, inevitably a herd of psychics were brought in to investigate. <laughs> oh. I think we need to come up with a name for a yeah, group of more a group than of like psychics, three or four psychics. A flock. Yeah. No. Clutch. A, a clutch. A clutch of psychics. <laughs> a gaggle. I think I like gaggle. I think I like gaggle. It is official. We have ruled it. decided. So that will be from now on. Uh, a, a group of psychics will always be a gaggle. That works for me. Uh, well, they so. should see it coming. I mean, like, well, that is true. Yeah, they they that. should already know we're going to call them that exactly. So, that way. You know, I don't think that Ouija boards are. Uh, they've got such a bad rap um, as being some sort of evil conduit to the dark dimensions. Yep. You know, I have one it's on my coffee just, table. Yeah, it's just a. Uh, it's 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 just a tool like any other kind of tool, and I think for the most part. Um, I mean, I think they're harmless. I think that for the it's a party game, and that's how it yeah. started. And you know, people who use them who are sure that they're getting messages from you know wherever. I think most of those messages are coming from inside your head. Yeah. I think that it is more of a case of you, you know, even unconsciously manipulating the planchette to give out to spell no. out the messages that either you want to impress your friends with, yeah. or you're you're hearing what you want to hear, right. or you know, or maybe, you know, it is something you're tapping into something else in your head. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Who's who's providing some psychically providing some kind of message. But I don't I don't really think that I'm not saying it's impossible. I just don't think that majority of times that people using a Ouija board or any kind of communication device, mm-hmm. I think nine times out of ten you're not talking to a ghost. Right. However, there's that one time where you may actually be communicating with something because there have been lots of really credible information that has come through Ouija boards in the last 150 years, you know, um, but, you know, people who say that they set them on fire and then they appear back in the house the next day. And, you know, I, I think that these are great stories and they, they, they make fantastic stories and, you know, they scare us and they're creepy and they're, they're weird. And I just think it's a really amazing, really Ameri- piece of Americana. Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's art. I think Ouija boards are art. Yes. And I think they are art pieces, and they are American history. And I think they're just. I think they're really cool. Um, I'm not. I'm. I've, we've got them all over the place here. I mean, yes. I'm awesome. not worried about them bringing anything here with them, or 
you know, causing any kind of disturbances. I mm -hmm. mean, we, you know, we give away, you know, a dozen of them at the I conference every year and, and every, and every age, shape and form from, you know, Swami boards to, you know, you know, just old school, basic full Ouija boards. I mean, I just think they're, I just think they're a really cool piece of, of American history and, yep. and, and a nice link to, you know, the ghost world. But do I, do I really think they're, you know, radio, you know, devices that contact demons? Absolutely no. Yep. I, don't. I, I so, personally have told yeah. people, I said, I'm not going to buy it until that plant jet starts moving by itself. Yeah, yeah there you go. <laughs> then you can start, yeah, to, then you can start to believe it. But right? My family's so. very, like they freaked out when I got it and so that just made me enjoy it even well you know more. that's I, I that's, that's movies and pop culture influence and, on this stuff and so and, I, I told him I said I leave the planchette on no so that way if any ghosts come through they just know look oh well got denied right right up front so right. I was like I leave right. it right there yeah. but no I love it yeah um, it makes for great movies um, yeah Ouija 2 Origin of Evil that's a pretty you good told movie me that I like that, check one. that one out. I like that's that one didn't like the first one very much but I did really like the you know like the origin story was that was that was very it's, it's very entertaining and but that's that's what it amounts to it's entertainment I mean it's like you know how many times have I told everybody you can't you know when you you watch the conjuring and they're fun but those are characters that's not really Ed and Lorraine Warren right, yeah, yeah, you know that's a just a character sure. that's a lot of fun yeah Mr. Handyman who also sings as Elvis you know yeah. and and as a demonologist you know <laughs> uh, you know that does it's just characters you know and so that kind of stuff is fun and I mean some of my favorite, I mean, how over the top are those Insidious movies? But they're awesome. Oh, yeah. You know, but they're completely insane. And it's the same way with, you know, the Ouija movies and whatever. It's it's fun entertainment and it's great. You know, it's great and it's, it's spooky, cool stuff. But, you know, how very, very small, small, small percentage of truth. Right. Any of that stuff. But just remember, the real ghosts are in your head. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to get out. So... <laughs> Okay, well, I think that we should probably wrap this up. Uh, we had a pretty long story this time, and and I think a, a fun discussion on this one. I like this. This was this was a fun. Yeah, episode. I like so, it too. Um, anyway, guys, thank you uh, to everybody out there. Thank you for listening. Um, and again, we're going to ask you, please um, share this this show with your friends. Uh, we we really enjoy doing it, and um, we think uh, if you enjoy it, I think that you probably know some people who would also enjoy it. Uh, who haven't found it yet. Uh, I've had a lot of very close friends of mine who told me, hey, I just started listening to the podcast, you know, how many months later? Half Six months later. Yeah. So, like, you know, guys. people Thanks. are still finding it. But if you if you find it and if you like it and if you haven't done it yet, go to iTunes. I don't, no matter where you listen to it, whether you listen to it on the podcast or SoundCloud mm -hmm. or wherever, go to iTunes and, and leave us a review. Um, you don't even have to write anything if you don't want to. We love it when you do because those are always the fun ones. I, I love to read the. I was getting nervous. I, to, I love to read the ones that people write about. But um, if nothing else, just you know, give us a star review or whatever. Um, preferably four higher, please. Um, anyway, uh, give us a review, and um, we'd really appreciate it. it. Makes it easier for people to find us in the future. So thanks again. Thanks for listening, and uh, turn it back to Cody. Alrighty. The American Hauntings Podcast is a way to combine historic record, folklore, science, observation, and imagination to uncover more about America's most haunted places, including St. Louis, Missouri. American Hauntings is a bi-weekly podcast. You can hear new episodes every other Tuesday, so please tune in to hear our latest episode and receive a brand new look at history and hauntings. You can learn more about our podcast and find new episodes on iTunes by searching for American Hauntings or by going to AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com. 
where we also have links to some of Troy's books, as well as information about his upcoming ghost tours, events, and haunted happenings. As for your host, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at CodyBeckSTL or at CodyBeck.com. You can find Troy on Instagram at TroyTaylorGram, on Facebook at the Troy Taylor Author page, or at AmericanHauntings.net. This episode of the podcast was written by Troy Taylor, and it was produced and edited by me, Cody Beck. Some of the music in this episode was written and recorded by Charlie Brockus at Lighthouse Sounds in Alton, Illinois.